This is an audio recording of an interview with Douglas Harding by Michael Toms of New Dimensions Radio in San Francisco in February 1985. Douglas, welcome. Thank you. Douglas, I'd like to go back to an earlier time in your life and when you started seeking uh, or actually realized that you needed to do that. Um, How did that begin for you? What actually occurred? Was it a result of your childhood? Well, I think there were there were a good many factors, Michael. One which um, was very important for me, and still is really, um, you could say it's thankfulness for having happened. You know, it struck me that, uh, well, I don't see why it should have happened. Occurred. You know, most of us don't, we overlook that gift of having happened, don't we? And it seemed to me really chickening out uh, evasion, really, to live and die and take everybody else's word for who's doing that. So I was going to have a jolly good go at having a sense of having occurred and respect and gratitude for having occurred and the mystery of what it is that has occurred and the ability, opportunity, and need to go into that for myself, which meant really doubting everything I've been told about it and having a a fresh look uh, at what's here or what am I, who am I. So that was the main motive. There were others. Interesting. You mentioned the word doubt and and doubting. Uh, Mm -hmm. What did that have to do with, uh, you know, the transition or the change? Well, it seems to me that um, I need to doubt what I read, what I'm told, what uh, um, is going on. All these messages are coming to me, Michael, about what I am for others. And that's fine for them. I mean, what what Douglas is for you and for everybody, that's their business. And uh, I guess Douglas, there's no way of contradicting or differing from from those readings of what Douglas is out there for them. But after all, that is my appearance, isn't it? The way I'm coming across to you at what, here at this time, what, five feet away. And uh, the doubt comes in when I start applying those messages I get from you over there applying them right here. And uh, I find that they do need doubting because, what, uh, to put it very simply, I'm just not what I look like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would add, thank God. <laughs> I'm just not what I look like. And I'm not even not what I look like. Uh, I, I'm the exact opposite of what I look like. Oh, I am, in my own experience, here if I may say so, the exact opposite uh, in every respect, as far as I can make out, of what I appear to be to you over there. Now, my appearance is perfectly valid. What you're receiving, you're receiving. No way way past that. I have to put up with that. Or you have to put up with it, rather. (laughs) But I'm just not like that here. And what I find here, Michael, is a different story. And it requires me to doubt Everything I've been told, uh, and uh, about, not about the world, but where, where I'm coming from, this place here, naught inches from myself, to doubt all the stuff that's been laid on me, 
and I have a fresh look, as if for the first time, out of gratitude for having occurred, and uh, curiosity, and also a feeling that perhaps, as has been said down the ages here, right here where I am lies an immense mystery and treasure. In fact, it's what I need. Most of us, uh, I think, pay a lot of attention to what other people think of us, and um, we develop ourselves in that way. I mean, in, mm-hmm. in some sense, we create uh, who we are based on what we've learned about what we're supposed to be. And in some sense, we, if we stop and take a look at it, we start to realize that most of those aspects of ourselves frequently have come from outside of ourselves. I, I think this is, this is absolutely true. Nor is this a, a bad thing. I think it's absolutely indispensable. And if I never achieve the, if I never come to the realization that for other people why I'm um, Douglas with all his uh, peculiar characteristics and limitations and all that, if I'm never able to see myself in imagination through other people's eyes, I'm not fully human. I'm not saying that that isn't essential, an essential uh, part of being human is indeed, in fact, I've said perhaps the very heart of the matter. uh, Out there, I am, out there, I'm manifestly not only human, but this very special, uh, unique, one-off human called Douglas Harding. And that I have to come to terms with. And uh, I think perhaps the earlier part of one's life is coming to terms with that. Very difficult lesson. Never fully achieved. But if we stay there, Michael, at that, I, I, for me, that's hell. If, if, if I don't transcend this, um, without transcend it, without abolishing it, I'm perfectly aware that at this moment, why Douglas is for you the, uh, present in all his Douglasness. And uh, that's your problem. I, I don't find that here. Instead, I find space for Michael. And I'm talking quite, quite physically, actually, I find myself here to be space at this time for your face, your uh, personality, what you're saying, the scene behind you. I am busted wide open for you. And uh, in order to receive you, Michael, I am have to be totally different. It's like a mirror here. And a mirror works because it doesn't have characteristics. It's empty of itself and therefore it reflects the world. Well, I find myself here empty of Douglas. Now, you talked about Douglas being 76. Well, that's your problem. I can't find any evidence of that here. And I think, oh, people like me have that experience, don't they? <laughs> Say, what, 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 what's this age business? That's other people's problem. The place I'm coming from is empty of all that stuff, as it is empty of whiskers and teeth and eyes and all that stuff. Empty now for you. So I guess we're trading faces at this time, aren't we? Possibly. In some sense, uh, we've heard about how the mirror uh, reflects us back to ourselves, the mirror of the other person. And uh, so often we project uh, what we think out onto other people. And underneath that, of course, we may be speaking about ourselves, talking about ourselves. What about that mere aspect of the other person and in our relationships with other people in the world around us? Well, interesting, important, and for me, not the central issue. I would go behind that to look for something more fundamental. Um, 
to, to just in all simplicity and sincerity look at the place I occupy now and uh, this business of projection and all that I mean perfectly interesting indeed important but I'm you see I was an architect and an architect finds that buildings are only as good as their foundations well I'm uh, I'm interested in laying foundations of living life from s- sound foundations and uh, from the bottom line, if you like, of what is the basic experience of myself here without psychologizing or interpreting or philosophizing or being religious about it or anything. I just what is very, very simple and embarrassingly obvious, for me anyway, and that is that I am... At this moment, here am I gone. I mean, Douglas is a memory I don't wish to have at this moment, or not particularly. If I want to establish he's around, all I've got to do is get out of the mirror, and there he is six feet away or four feet away, but he isn't here. Here, I experience myself now as space for you. And that's... You see, you talk about doubt. I was told we were face-to-face. Now, I doubt that. I, I doubt all these uh, things. This was laid on me that I was face-to-face with people. Well, now, at this moment, I'm sorry. Well, I'm very happy to say that it's non-confrontational. It's not face-to-face. Head-on collision, symmetrical. It is, com- for me, completely asymmetrical. And it's face over there to no face here. And this, for me, is the great discovery of of Zen, of Buddhism, and I think of, ultimately, of the perennial philosophy and the great religions of the world, that one, you call it spirit, you call it awareness, you call it void, shunyata, many names for it, and it seems to me that's what I need to do to live from what I am instead of from what I'm told I am. Instead of living from a lump of stuff, to live from this emptiness which is full of the world because see if there's something here a Douglas thing here I'm that thing stop and that's a b- b- pretty grim really but if there's no thing here which I perceive to be no thing here why then I am everything I want everything that's on offer what happens to the individual Douglas Harding in the midst of the space well Douglas Harding is uh, carries on quite uh, quite normally. I mean, uh, there isn't a mirror. The, the sounds are coming out from this place, and they tell me Douglas Harding is, uh, you know, kind of functioning uh, uh, quite normally. And I'm not interested in setting up anything new. I'm interested in... in sim- I'm not interested in change, really. I'm interested in telling it like it is, in living from the way I am living. And uh, the, if I'm living from the way I am living, I think then, then Douglas is not phony. But if I'm living from the way I think I ought to be or society tells me to be, I think Douglas is phony. Why is it that, uh, that you speak to people about what you do? Oh, good do? question. I'll sometimes wonder. <laughs> well, I I, I, I... I'm not sure. I, I think... I just like sharing this. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, that, it's such a simple and nice and good thing. And when I share this with people, I experience... It's like kind of love, really. I mean, uh, on 
all matters of superficial matters, we, we don't really come together. I mean, we might share an interest in one thing or another, uh, you know, ranging from golf to religion. But all that content stuff, it means that all sorts of differences between us, which can never be superseded. But um, when I see who I am, which I'm doing now, which is awareness, stop, stroke space, or whatever, when I see what I am here, I see that it's not Douglas's void or emptiness, but the, the void of Michael and, uh, and every listener to our program. And so this overcomes all the barriers. The alienation is gone, finished. And when I see who I am, I see I'm you, I'm you, I'm you. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, it, well, I mean, it, it just, it, it just is not a relationship between myself and people is identity. So it's a it's a, a an appreciation of your connection to others, or is it deeper? Well, it's even it deeper than even that. I mean, well, if I may say it, at this moment, Michael, well, there, there, there's your face. Now, I, I promise you, I have your appearance now, and I, my reading is that uh, that that is my privilege to enjoy your appearance. And uh, you, you can't, because if, I, if your face went bright blue now, well, that'd be my experience, wouldn't it? Not yours, okay? Right? So I have your appearance. Well, that's a, what you might call a, a head start communication, isn't it? I mean, it's a lovely thing to have your appearance. You're so kind. Give it to me. Aren't, aren't you? You give me your appearance. Well, that's a good start to what we call you know, intimacy or personal relationships. Well, I say, well, now, what's behind the, that face, you know? What, is something lurking behind those eyes, you know, some spirit or other? Well, in other words, to probe beyond the appearance to the reality of Michael. Well, how do I do that? Well, I just look here. I don't look across to you. I look right at where I'm coming from. I... I look at the place here where I can't find, find any eyes, but a great big window, not a pair of little peepholes in a, in a meat ball. I can't find any meat ball. <laughs> I can't find any meat ball here. There's an absence of meat ball here, which you call, I quite say, is empty, and it's empty for you. I'm busted wide open for you. Well, uh, so I have your parents looking at you and looking back here where I'm coming from. In the opposite direction, 180 degrees, I, I have you a space because this space or void is got no Douglas marks on it, no Michael marks on it. It is it is what I am, and uh, for my money, it's what all beings are. Well, and uh, children, little children, know this. I mean, they're living from their space, but we 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 had thing laid on us. And little children are not face-to-face -face with their mums and so on. There's space for their mums. And this is getting back to that truthfulness. It seems to be quite essential. Douglas, as I sit here in my role of interviewer, um, I think as I hear you talk of the question that arises, well, how do you get anything done if you're space? Uh, if you're simply being there with space and emptiness... What practical value does that have as you function in the world? And what is the relevance of that? Well, for a start, Michael, I would say to be effective in the world, uh, it would seem to me a good policy 
to live from the truth and not from fiction or lie, to live from the way I am and not the way I've been told I am, to live from how it is instead of how it ain't. And uh, uh, it seems to me that my life was incredibly snared up and inefficient. Douglas was a mess, a real terrible mess, I promise you, while he thought that here was a solid lump, that I was living out of a solid box or lump. That really snared my life up. And I was grossly, I think, uh, ineffectual, inefficient and troubled. Now, since, and this has taken a lot of doing, I think, since I've been able to perceive very clearly the obvious and uh, progressively to live from this obviousness here, I find that Douglas's life is more effective, more efficient, certainly much more energy available because I'm living from the place that energy comes from. And also, Michael, you see, so much energy, so much uh, effort is spent building up a fictional box here, meatball. You know, Douglas has got to adjust himself to Michael and then to uh, Jack and Henry and Mary, putting on different cap, different hat, different face for all these people. And keeping this fiction in position is so de-energizing. You might get tired out. But if I'm living from my space, I find, you know, just requisite energy. Now, you say, well, what about effect in the world? I mean, these hands seem to be quite busy. The feet going all sorts of places. The voice, as you hear now, functioning fairly normally. Uh, what's lacking? I think one is just living from the way one did, less consciously, at two, three, four, five years old. And th- this, is, uh, this is more efficient, infinitely more efficient, than living from the fiction of a living out of a thing. As I say, a, a meatball here with two little, two little peepholes in it is one huge, great eye, E-Y-E, I mean, here, one huge, great space. And living from it, living from it uh, is the only practical thing to do, I think. Everything else is quite unpractical or impracticable. I think of what Jesus said, become as a little child well, yes. to enter the kingdom. But he did, and he also said some other things, which uh, I, I hope he meant what I think he meant. Uh, he, he, he associated becoming as a little child with having one eye, a single eye. He said, let your eye be single, and your whole body shall be full of light. Well, I can see two little peepholes over there in Michael's face. When I look here at Douglas's quote face, unquote, not two little peepholes, one huge darn great window. And I, for my money, that's exactly what he meant. He said, my, if your eye is single, your whole body shall be full of light, having no place dark. And uh, other, t- other places, particularly in the Gospel of Thomas, for instance, he, 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 he talks about the kingdom of heaven being within you, within you. And uh, that all you need, this treasure, this kingdom, this light, is right where you are. And you, how do you find it? You find it by simple, as I would say, a simple gaze in, 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 the, in my direction, at 180 degrees to my normal uh, vision. It's looking back. It's, Michael, it's, uh, for me, it, uh, what he's up to, what Jesus is up to, and the great mystics, 
are um, not only looking at what you're looking at, but noticing what you're living out of. And I'm looking at a face, and I'm living out of no face, which is what Zen Buddhism calls my original face, my true face, which has no nose in it, no eyes, no mouth, or whatever. You know, the Heart Sutra and Buddhism and so on, all about seeing your true face. Your true face, which is the, the void, Buddha nature, emptiness, capacity, awareness. So Jesus was a Buddhist and Buddha was a Christian? Oh, yes, I think absolutely. <laughs> yes, entirely. Yes. It's interesting. Uh, so often we become, I think, again, when we're talking about religion, uh, Buddhism, Christianity, um, religions tend to tell us uh, what we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to be. Yes, I really, really, this is so, isn't it? Um, I, I suppose, in a way, one's initial thrust has, has been a religious or spiritual one, but then I have to add to that that the greatest block uh, I have uh, experienced in the world to sharing this with people is a religious one. If you, if you said, Douglas, well, who would you rather explain this? This, uh, this thing that you're on about, who would you rather explain it to? Um, a, 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 a gang of people taking taken at random from the streets of San Francisco with no religious uh, unity or intent, or else a, a crowd of earnest Buddhist Christians, Hindus, or whatever, I should certainly choose the former. Because religion, religion is a matter of saying, believe this. It's a matter of accumulating preconceptions. My business is the... I'm in the business of dropping preconceptions. Doubting, doubting. I doubt everything I can doubt, and what's left, I'll buy. And that what's left is what I find here, which is awareness, stroke, space, for the world to happen in. Call it silence for these sounds. Call it stillness for the movements all around. It's the same thing. Same no thing. You were practicing your architectural profession in the world. Uh, how were you able to do that? How did the how did that space influence your work? You, you seem to have impression that perhaps this isn't very efficient. Well, I I wasn't too bad an architect. <laughs> um, no, I I really I really am quite sure that this. Uh, see, it seems to me that even if you're going to rob a bank, see, I mean, to rob a bank efficiently, see who's robbing the bank. I mean, I, I think when you see who you are, you wouldn't want to rob a bank because you realize that the world is your oyster and all the traces of the world are yours because you were space for them. You wouldn't want to rob a bank, but I would say to rob a bank efficiently, see who's robbing the bank. And don't imagine that, you know, mounted on your shoulders is this kind of meatball. I mean, the meatball is true, you know, for you where you are. That's what I look like. And may I just add this? You see, it sounds rather crazy, doesn't it? It sounds as though Douglas is a crazy Englishman. You know they're eccentric. Curiosity. Yeah. Well, you know, yes. But I just swear to you at this moment, there's nothing here where, where you see my face. There's nothing here. And you would then say to me quite reasonably, well, Douglas, I think you're crazy because there is something there and I can see it. So I would say, all right, Michael, come and see. And on the way up, take photographs all the way up, come up with your camera and your microscopes and so on. Take a photograph of my face, you would need to be there for five feet away, and then uh, uh, the whole Douglas, you'd need to be ten feet away, and then 
as you came up with your camera and your microscopes, you'll get progressively pictures of just a face, just a bit of skin, tissues, cells, molecules. And the point of contact here, you've lost me. And, you see, if you go up to, all the way up to a thing, you lose it, don't you? One of Douglas's books is uh, entitled uh, On Having No Head, Zen and the Rediscovery of the Obvious. And clearly, uh, you've been talking about having no head. And I'm wondering, can we get to the Zen and the rediscovery of the obvious? What is the obvious thing that you rediscovered, that you've rediscovered? What is that? Well, it's, uh, it's that where I am is um, where, I, where I, what I'm looking out of, where I am right here, where other people, where you at this moment are seeing my face, at this place I find not a, not a whisker, you know, not a paw, not a, a speck. I just find here nothingness, emptiness, absence. And it's full of your face, full of the um, decorations on the walls of the studio. If I went out into the streets of San Francisco, why well, it would be the, the traffic in the buildings, and at night it would be the sky full of thousands of stars. So my, as the English poet and uh, a mystic, great English mystic said, uh, that's Thomas Traherne, he said, no brims nor borders in myself I see. My essence is capacity capacity. And uh, it seems to me this is embarrassingly obvious. And to, to show how one needs doubt in order to come to the obvious, I was told, Michael, and we were all told, that this is a face-to-face -face situation. For me, it's not confrontation. Confrontation means forehead to forehead, face to face, head-on collision with all that implies in aggression and troubles, it's not that way, and that I've never, never, never been face to face with anyone in my life. It's always for the third party looking at us from the side that we are face to face, and that's true. But the actual immediate experience is that uh, I have your face now, and my guess is you have mine, and we're trading them, and it's a very lovely, beautiful, true thing to do. And to acknowledge this is to live, I think, a much more genuine, interesting, beautiful life. In doing this, do you have you developed any special techniques or ways that you can share with others? Oh, yes, yes, indeed, lots of them, lots of them. And uh, can I you share a few with us? Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, well, the 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 simple ways one, one we've just done, uh, trading faces, if you like. I just look at your face and uh, receive it into my space. I mean, if I had something like that here, the same kind, it would, it would just be like slapping, slapping your face and keep out, Michael, I've got one, thank you very much. Wouldn't I? But now I say, welcome, Michael, because I don't have one here. I'm so happy for you to take all those years off me. You know, and I have your face, and that is the, 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 the perhaps the most tremendously vivid demonstration of this. But Michael, we we 
I think it's gotten around this method. Um, what we do to make this really sharp is to that you and I don't just look at one another in in open air as we're doing now, but we we get it at the two ends of a shopping bag, a trash bag, shopping bag, preferably a white bag with the ends cut off. And so we're face-to-face, -face, allegedly, in this paper bag. And then, you know, we look and see how many faces there are in the bag. Quite only one, obviously. And uh, so the paper bag is a very well, I think, coming to be a well-known experiment here. Get into the paper bag with your child, your wife, your enemy, your friend, and and you see the brilliant, with great brilliance, uh, that is not face to face, and uh, uh, you see the reason why we're in danger of seeing the truth in a paper bag and in, it's terribly difficult outside is that our mums and dads and teachers and friends told us what to experience in ordinary life they said it was face to face so I bought that, I believed it but then you see they never got around to telling us what to see in a paper bag the bottom cut off so we're unconditioned and we're in a position to tell it like it is there so that is one of the main ones Another one, of course, is the single eye one we've just been looking at. How many eyes are you looking out of in your own experience? Another way is to point. Point to your face and see what your finger's pointing at. I would really recommend that to anyone who's interested in, in our program now. To, you know, just point to, point, point to uh, your face and see what you can see there. And I think you'll see that it's empty for the scene. There's some little few techniques, about all sorts of others. When you're driving a car, and we just came over a marvelous bridge, as you can imagine. I mean, you, you really see the space where I am is still, and it's the bridge that's going through the space. And uh, it's a wonderful uh, way of coming to who you are, is to see you right where you are, or rather where I am. Never moved an inch. It's space for the world to to uh, rush by in. No movement here, but space for movement. Just as a silence here for sound. There are all sorts of ways for creeping into the place you never left. And we overlook. This is the place we overlook. We overlook the looker absence of. <laughs> we overlook the absence of the looker, and we put the thing there and bung this place up. And it seems to me to be tragic and mistaken nonsense. As we look around us, Douglas, and as we uh, allow uh, our space to receive some of the things we see in the world, one could say that uh, there's a great deal of confusion, chaos. Absolutely. Um, we live in troubled times. And... Um, I think of the Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. And I was thinking the other day that uh, what gets missed in that uh, little Chinese adage is the, the emphasis gets placed on the interesting times part, but it's like, oh, may you live mm -hmm. in interesting times. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> most of us choose not to live That's right. in some sense in interesting times. We tend to be overwhelmed by yes. challenge. Uh, sure. and the problem yeah. and fail to see uh, the opportunity on the other side and as you're talking I'm thinking about the tremendous quote problems that 
uh, are facing uh, the planet today. Things like nuclear proliferation, the, the threat of nuclear holocaust. and um, How does your incredibly simple uh, approach and analysis apply uh, when we look at those seemingly gigantic, overwhelming problems? I think it applies all down the line. Um, take, the thing, take the question we've already been looking at, uh, confrontation. It seems to me that the last, uh, oh, I don't know how many, 100,000 years of human evolution have been working out the confrontation pattern, which is an appearance and not real, I mean, animals don't aren't face to face, or, or very small infants, or very small children aren't. There's no confrontation there. It's asymmetrical. It's face to no face. You know. Now it seems to me that the human, the human uh, condition as developed over the last uh, few hundred thousand years, is uh, working out its value, the limitations, and finally the desperate danger of this myth of confrontation. And it seems to me that uh, the, the cure for this confrontation which threatens genocide is to see that confrontation is always for the third party and that it, whether it's power blocks, nations, or individuals, the confrontation thing is not on. It's not true. In no way can I put something here to match what I see over there. It's asymmetrical. And so the the application of this to questions of uh, war, peace, and nuclear nuclear threat and all that it couldn't be more relevant. What, what I'm talking about couldn't be more relevant to these big questions. And all of them, I think it's relevant. Uh, the, the simple approach, which after all is deeply traditional, is just demythologized, I would say, deeply traditional, uh, it seems its relevance to all the big questions of our age couldn't be exaggerated. Well, it's, it's in some sense, perhaps when historians look back or uh, cultural observers look back, they may call this the age of rationality, uh, the age of the intellect, and because we do put so much uh, emphasis on rational understanding and logic and reason. And that emphasis and that placement has certainly gotten us um, various advances and progress and technologies and so forth and so on. At the same time, uh, there's been something lost in that in that exchange and that trade-off. And it seems to me that what you're talking about is that part that we've we've lost that that underneath the rationality, underneath the reason, underneath the logic is the is direct a, experience. Yes. On which is based, perceptual experience on which all uh, um, intellectual and rational uh, constructions have to rest, don't they? They have to rest on perception, otherwise they're uh, just nonsense. Well, yes, I would differ from what you suggested, if I may a little. Please. That um, it seems to me that what I, I'm on, my friends are on about, which is seeing where you're coming from, seeing who you really are, which is awareness. No thingness awareness. This um, is uh, is not irrational. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It seems to me to be scientifically verifiable. I mean, there's just nothing here. And if if anyone doubts it, 
the place where I'm coming from, the, my face at this moment, there's nothing here. Anyone doubts it, let them come up with their full battery of instruments and they will find no thing here. It's not only, doesn't only apply to faces, it applies to anything. When I go up to thing, I lose it. And it seems to me that we are suffering not from over-rationality, but from, from stupidity. It seems to me that the idea that we are face-to-face is not a rational thing, it's irrational in the, in the sense that it is, uh, it is not just absolutely visibly in every way nonsense. And uh, it's only the only way we can get confrontation going on now between Michael and Douglas is to be um, Mr. X or Miss X over there looking in, in, uh, on, on our face-to-faceness. For ourselves, it's totally different. And so I would, I would stress that this makes perfect sense. And I've spent the last 40 years working out what good sense it makes. Yes. One of the points that uh, I wanted to make in bringing up the intellect and the, the stressing rationality and logic is not to suggest that your approach is illogical or irrational, but mm. rather that his, it has put us in a place where it almost seems as if things have to be deeply complex mm. and intellectual oh, mm. and carried to um, extremes in order for us to appreciate them yes. or to have value. And that in that process, we lose sight of the simple answers. I couldn't put it more, more vividly than you've done. That's absolutely, absolutely so. I recall something that uh, Krishnamurti said, that, that the most complex problems um, require simple Solutions. solutions. And if the, if the solution is not simple, you can't stay with it. If a complex solution is no solution, it calls for further analysis. Simplicity can be, only be the answer. And see, I, I put it like this I think uh, uh, God herself, or what you would like to call the origin of the, the, the world, a very kind lady, God, uh, God arranged the uni- her universe, you see, in, in, a, in a way that was made the essential truth available for people who were sufficiently simple and didn't cover it all up, as we who covered up the essential messages. The essential messages are crystal clear and totally obvious to me. And I think the universe is a kindly universe, which makes the essential experience embarrassingly obvious. What is that experience? That is to see who I am here. And I I see the world in a kind of glimpsing way because it's so complicated. When I look back at what's looking at the world, it's clear as daylight. In fact, it's just like daylight. Speckless clarity, which is kind of like a mirror or space for the world to happen in. And that's available if we're only simple and direct enough, isn't it? Douglas, do you have a um, spiritual practice besides what you've been talking about? I'm very glad you asked me that. (laughs) Yes, I do. Uh, You can call it meditation, if you like. Um, It's not meditation as uh, normally understood. It's... uh, if it's meditation at all, it's meditation for the marketplace, meditation for all time, all seasons, and it is to keep in touch with uh, what's here as well as what's there. I would call it two-way looking, or two-way hearing, two-way experiencing, and uh, at this moment I'm doing it, 
And if I weren't doing it now, I'd be a fraud because, you know, I've, I've got to be what I'm talking about here now. And uh, the, the meditation for me now is to look in, look out and see your face and look in at 180 degrees to that look and see here my original face, as Zen calls it, or my no face or my capacity. And uh, it seems that no, there are no occasions, Michael, when this kind of two-way attention is inappropriate. And of course, it sounds like a split, doesn't it, between the thing there and the no thing here. But when one really looks, they come together in perfect unity. So the space I find here is perfectly filled at this time without division, with uh, with with you over there. And uh, this, whatever you're doing and whatever I'm doing, I, I'm quite sure I do it worse if I'm overlooking the absence here. And I do it better when I'm attending to that, along with the filling of the absence. So it seems to me um, a meditation, not for the meditation or for the zendo, it seems to me meditation for ordinary life. And it's hard to do. I mean, I'm, I really must say that. I think the initial seeing of this is the simplest thing, most obvious thing, embarrassingly simple. Just noticing we're not face to face. Now that is something anyone can do, and uh, at any time, at will, and you do it perfectly. You can't do it wrong. But uh, now the difficult part comes: how do I live from that? And that's a big deal. That really takes a lot of attention. I would say a lot of need. I think the reason why I practiced it because I was so badly in need of it. You know, I have this incredible mess muck up Douglas was making, you know, it was like I really needed needed to to do this. Also I you know, eventually one perhaps has friends with whom one can share this because it's highly infectious this condition. <laughs> <laughs> contagious. Well it's very contagious, uh, fortunately. Uh, uh. How do you find your life today? Well, how do I seem to find it? <laughs> you seem to find it quite. Uh, well, I find it incredibly enjoyable. Clear. And well, I just happy. don't find anything to complain about. See, it seems to me that when I see well, what's here, I, I I I just have no way of saying or no motivation for saying no to anything. I mean, it's like a mirror. The mirror doesn't say, I'm going to reflect the pretty things and uh, not reflect the other things. A mirror is uh, is receptive of what's on offer. And here, it's space, I find myself space, a space which is not choosy. A space which, in effect, says yes to what happens. And that, for me, is, in, in a way, the, the bottom line, uh, that I have no complaints. That's why, you know, I, I just find life incredibly enjoyable. And it doesn't mean that there isn't nasty things going on, horrible things going on in a sense. But if I am space for them, I am free of them and I am them. No way of chickening out from the horrors and nastiness of the world, but there's no separation. And uh, it, 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 it works in my experience. And it's, it's, it's not easy. It takes a, a lot of dedicated practice, I would say. But the, I think living without this is even more difficult than, you know, I think the, the, the options are, you know, shall I live from the truth or the, the, the nonsense? 
and it seems to be living from nonsense is ultimately a harder way. What about death, dying? Well, a good question. When I look in the mirror, I see uh, see someone who's under the sentence of death. I mean, he is, and uh, that's quite proper, and I'm very happy about that, because uh, you know it's something that a mortician is going to handle and can handle. But when I look in this direction, what I'm looking out of is much too big, and uh, you know, no mortician I know is going to be able to handle what's here. You see, so. It's a, it's a case of what dies. And when there is content, when there is uh, this or that or the other, there's change and there's death. I mean, that, that's, the, the, that's the long and short of it. But the space I am here, this capacity, this awareness, this nothingness, has no content of itself. And I have no, I have no experience of it beginning or being interrupted. It's not kind. It's not in that game at all. It's it it is it is capacity for for death. Capacity for death, and everything in it dies, including planets and galaxies and people and every darn thing. But the, the space here is you know, this aware, no thingness. It's not in the market for death, because nothing to, nothing to die, nothing to change there. In a sense, it's absolutely timeless. Not in the sense, actually. And this is not a matter of belief, it's a matter of just simple inspection. So you're not afraid, afraid of death? Well, I, you know, I'm not, uh, not terribly keen on, uh, on the aches and pains of it and uh, the, the etc. and causing distress and being a nuisance, you know, all my gear has to be gone through and all that nonsense. So, no, I don't like death any more than anyone else. But, uh, but who dies? That's the point. Douglas, is, fortunately, Douglas is a temporary, a temporary uh, phenomenon. And even more fortunately, where I'm coming from is, isn't like that at all. So, just as face to no face, so death to no death. Asymmetry again. Douglas, it's uh, been uh, a delight to speak with you today. Thanks for coming. I've very much enjoyed uh, talking about it with you and being with you and being you. I've been speaking with Douglas Harding, Englishman, author of Hierarchy of Heaven and Earth, and On Having No Head, Zen and the Rediscovery of the Obvious. My name is Michael Toms. On behalf of the entire New Dimensions radio family, I'm wishing you well.